0: About a month ago, if you are one who watches award ceremonies, and maybe you're not, you may have seen on the news, Oprah Winfrey sparked kind of a lively internet debate about an idea that is probably as old as man himself. She said this, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. I understand the seriousness of the context in which she was speaking, the subject matter, but the notion of your truth borrows heavily from the classic idea of relativism, the idea that truth is not fixed, that truth is not absolute. And so uh, truth varies depending on personal and cultural circumstances, and so you can have your truth and I can have my truth and we can all be happy about that in the end. Um, The reality is that underlies a lot of what we see early on in Scripture when Uh, man goes wrong, when man falls into sin, as early as the the fall of man, we see this kind of mentality towards truth. In Genesis chapter 2, God gave a warning to Adam about the trees in the garden, and one in particular, and he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And if you know the story, you know that when the serpent comes, when Satan comes in the form of a serpent, and he tempts Eve. Eve sort of paraphrases that back, that warning back to the serpent, it misquotes it a little bit, talks about not touching the tree as well, but essentially recites what, what the warning had been. And Satan responds in Genesis 3 4, and says, You will not surely die. And immediately we have God's truth. And then Satan offering this interpretation or deception on truth, saying, no, this is actually what it is. You can believe that, but, but this is really the way that it is. Ever since that moment in the garden, there have been people who have heard or read God's word and have responded to it by saying, well, you can believe that, but I don't. Um, you may believe in that God, but, but I don't. Ultimately, that may be your truth, but it's not mine. At some level, every conversation about the Bible comes down to a question of authority. Starting with the fundamental premise of, do you believe in absolute truth? Do you believe there is such a thing as truth that is fixed? And if so, do you believe that there is a God who made the universe and who therefore has the right to establish what is true? And if so, then do you believe that he has spoken to us and revealed his truth through the Bible, through his word? How you answer those questions will matter for all of eternity for you, how you respond to each of those. And what we're going to see this morning is Jesus Christ delivering an answer to some accusations from the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5 and addressing the central question about his self-identity, declaring who he is as the son of god and then of equal importance Jesus will talk about the authority on which he makes such claims the authority on which he is able to say that i am the son of god able to condemn and and to judge to forgive and to condemn so if you turn to john chapter 5 we're going to pick up this morning in verse 19 last week we covered verses 1 through 18 and we left off on what what appears to be a bit of a turning point, we know that it's not in the sense of a surprising turning point because it was already foretold in Scripture, but in verse 18, we hit that moment when the Jewish religious leaders began to accuse Jesus. This, this whole mentality at this point changes Of from Jesus is just sort of a, a nuisance, Jesus seems to get crowds around him, we're kind of curious about Jesus To the point where in John chapter 5 verse 18 they now accuse him of first violating the Sabbath, disobeying God's law, and then secondly of claiming to be equal with God and the sin of blasphemy. And so it it all changes at this moment because they are now publicly in Jerusalem standing there saying, No longer is this guy just sort of somebody that you should be wary of or we're not so sure of. This guy is a blasphemer who is claiming to be equal with God. And so the rest of John 5 is Jesus responding to those charges. If we were to imagine this as a courtroom, essentially the first half of what we read, verses 19 to 29, is Jesus confessing and saying, yes, I am equal with God. That is is right, what you have said. And then he's going to add some... Some clarification, if you will, in the sense of saying, uh, this is not necessarily equality in the way you think in a worldly sense of a competitive kind of equality, but this is nonetheless very much equal. He is equal with God. And then in the second section that picks up then in verse uh, 30 down to the end of the chapter, it is, is here's the testimony, here's the witness, here's the information that backs up this claim. Confess to this, and now here's the authority on which I say it. So you could break these down into two sections, identity and testimony. Let's be clear, Jesus is not on trial here. Uh, Even when Jesus stands before Pilate and Herod before he is crucified, he is not someone who has been taken into custody as sort of an unwilling criminal who's being put on trial. Jesus has willingly given his life to be surrendered to the cross, and he stands there on the basis of his own authority, not on any governing authority. And so what he is doing here is taking the, the Jewish religious leaders, now making this public condemnation of him, and using that as a forum with which to teach and to begin to show them the truth of who he is, and at the same time, to turn the accusations, and to to show that it is the Jewish leaders, excuse me, who are the ones who are on trial. Sorry about that. So we pick up in John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself." And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Stop there. Remember again, the accusation that leads into all this is the Jewish leaders saying in verse 18, he is calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's what prompts this um, discourse by Jesus when he he speaks throughout the rest of this chapter. To which he is answering, you're right. That is exactly what I am claiming. I am claiming that the son and the father are equal, that both demonstrate the power of God, both function as God. Now what he's going to go on to say in this passage, as we've already seen here, one of the things he wants them to understand is that there is also a sense of the Son being dependent on the Father, and the Son, in terms of function, being subordinate to the Father. They are both God, but he is saying in in function, he is subordinate to the will of the Father, to do what the Father has willed for him to do. When we think of co-equals, especially in, in leadership and in corporate America or whatever it might be, we tend to think of two sort of strong, independent peers that, that hopefully will cooperate and complement each other. It doesn't necessarily always work that way, but we see sort of these, these two equals that, that have the potential uh, to, to both lead, to both rule, and to clash even, and, and they are equal. Jesus wants to to sort of dismiss any kind of the worldly take on this and make it very clear that yes, the Son is equal with the Father, both are fully God, and he's abundantly clear in verse 19 when he says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That is a profound statement of divinity, that whatever the Father is capable of doing, so the Son does as well. There is no distinction in terms of power and authority, Uh, and he then gives the, for instance here, if you will, of power over life and death. Uh, The Jews readily believed that God had the power of life, death, and resurrection. That was uniquely the power of God. There's a number of Old Testament scriptures that speak to that. Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And then you see also 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The, the rabbis are, are perfectly comfortable with the idea that God, that God the Father, as they saw him, was indeed the God over life and death and resurrection. But now here is the Son, particularly in verse 21, saying, "...for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will." now saying that the Son is a coequal in, in the ability to give life, to resurrect the dead. And the key to that, verse 21, is that last part when he says, to whom he will. Because even the rabbis would have said that there were men like Elijah who were able to be used by God as agents of God to raise the dead. They were under God's orders and they did what God told them to do and, and God in his power raised them. Jesus is saying the Son is able to do this By his will, in other words, when he stands outside that tomb in John 11 and says, Lazarus, come out, he is at that point demonstrating that the Son has full power over life, death, and resurrection. He can speak, and by the power of his word, the dead hear him and come to life and are raised. And of course, that's what he goes on to describe as this passage goes on. So there is equality between Father and Son. Both do what only God can do, and yet there is this uniqueness to the relationship in terms of Jesus' stated dependence on his Father, his, his coming to do the will of his Father. And it speaks of, of the Son perfectly obeying the Father and the Father perfectly loving the Son. So in function, Jesus subordinates himself to do the Father's will. So there's equality in terms of divinity, authority, power, honor and worship that is due to them, in the ability to speak God's truth. When the Father speaks or the Son speaks, it is God who is, who is speaking, and that is God's truth. And there is the power that they both have to give eternal life to those who are otherwise dead in sin. But as Philippians 2.6 tells us, that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There was still this functional subordination, this willingness to take, the form of a servant to do the will of his father. That's what he's explaining here in John chapter 5. Trying to help them understand that this is not two gods who are now in competition as the Romans certainly would have believed in that culture. The idea of there being multiple gods in competition was something that they were surrounded by. And he's saying that's not what this is. This is two who are equal, who are Father and Son, and they perfectly understand their place in terms of function and dependence, and they love each other perfectly, and and this is something the likes of which the world can't really understand, apart from it being revealed by God. So Jesus there in verse 23 says, the Father delegated judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In fact, he, he goes on then to make the point that if you do not Honor the Son, then you're not even honoring the Father who sent him. So he's, he's given us two things in this passage, two activities that, that Jesus has particularly singled out and said, Listen, you you want to understand the relationship of the Father and the Son, understand judgment, the ability to condemn or forgive for eternity, to condemn or to forgive. And also resurrection, the power to raise people from death to life. The Son, as we've read already, is able to speak forth life. Verse 25 makes that statement, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's already made it clear even before that in verse 24 that those who in this life hear and receive his truth, those who embrace what Jesus Christ is saying, who believe that he is who he says he is as the one who was sent from the Father, are rescued from spiritual death. They are delivered from that and they are passed over from spiritual death to eternal life. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been saved from an eternal spiritual death by the work of Jesus Christ and by his authority. The Father, then, it says, has given him authority over final judgment. And again, he clarifies that in verses 22 and 23, that that judgment is given, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In in Isaiah 42, when God is warning the people against idolatry in verse 8, he says, I will not give my glory to another. That claim, for the, the, the Jewish rabbis who are, who are trying to, to understand all this, they're struggling and saying, no, this is, this is blasphemy. This is some kind of stealing from God's glory. And Jesus is making it very clear in this passage that that glory belongs to he and to the Father, that they are both God, they both have the power of judgment and the power of resurrection. They are both God. And so the father ensures this honor for the son by delegating the power to execute judgment to him. So Jesus is being profoundly bold here about his self-identification. I alluded to this last week, that at this moment when it is essentially a public condemnation by the Jewish leaders, Jesus not only does not shirk from that or just sort of let it go and not say anything, he doubles down entirely and says... This is who the Son is, and the Son is in a perfect relationship with the Father, and the Son is able to raise the dead. So yes, if you're asking me or or charging me with claiming equality with God, yes, I am. So he's claiming equality while ensuring also that his readers understand the uniqueness of the relationship. Before I move on to the last section that starts in verse 30, just one more point out of this opening part that I I think is important because it's something that is taught consistently throughout the New Testament and yet it gives the appearance of a contradiction here. And that would be first verse 24. Truly I say to you, Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We read that, and we hear in that the, the roots of the gospel. You you hear, in the sense of receiving what I say, it's not just you, you, the words have sort of bounced off your eardrums, but you hear in a receptive way the truth that I am speaking, and you believe that the Father sent me, that I am the Savior who was sent from the Father, and you have eternal life. That is the essence of faith in verse 24. Hearing, believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. But then you come down to verse 29, and he said that there's coming this day when the Son will speak, and out of the tombs people will hear his voice in verse 29, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It sounds, at least for a moment, that this is now a works-based judgment, that he has talked about faith in verse 24, but said in that final judgment, those who have done good go to life, and those who have done evil go on to eternal destruction. Let's be clear here. The consistent witness of the New Testament is that it is both in the sense that our works, our lives as we live them out, are the evidence of the faith that has saved us. As we live our lives, that is the display or the fruit of what God has already done in saving us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a person who is a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, whose life is characterized by a continual pattern of evil and unrepentance and faithlessness. That's just not a description that's found in the New Testament that doesn't mean that at faith we become sinless we don't we are not perfected in this life and we continue to struggle with sin but it is a difference in how we respond to that sin and it is the evidence of growth the, the continued maturity in dealing with sin and in growing more in Christ likeness that's why James 2:26 says faith apart from works is dead because ultimately the life becomes the evidence of whether that life has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This harkens back a little bit to something we've read earlier in John 3.19. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. A life that exhibits a steady pattern of evil, of disobedience to God, is ultimately pledging allegiance to darkness, to being opposed to, to God and to His gospel. It persists in sin with little sense of conviction and with a disdain for repentance and brokenness. That is not the characteristic of the Christian life. Those who have been drawn to the light of Jesus Christ and who believe in Him, while not perfected in this life and still struggling with sin, love the light and hate our sin. When I've, I've had that question, Numerous times, and, and maybe you have too, as you've dealt with younger Christians who have struggled with some assurance of their salvation and they've committed some sin and they've wondered if, if they could really be saved or not. And one of the first things I'll say to somebody who, who says, I, you know, I'm just I'm struggling with this sin and I, I feel like I've fallen back into it and I feel terrible, is that's probably a great sign right there. The fact that you are aware of your sin and, and you are feeling remorse about your sin and conviction about your sin That's not the attitude of an unbeliever for the most part. An unbeliever may feel some remorse at at the way things turned out, at circumstances and things not going well, Um, but the the believer is a person who loves the light. And so when they they fall into sin and they they struggle with it, there's also that that desire for God's grace and God's help and for the strength to, to persevere and to grow and mature in that area. There's a sense of conviction and a willingness to repent. So in the final judgment... One's body of work, how your life has been lived, will be the evidence of whether or not you are trusting in Jesus Christ or have rejected his gospel and are relying on self. Let's read this last section now. So that's, Jesus has basically said, the Son of Man is equal with the Father. Now, verse 30, and notice the shift in pronoun. That should jump out to you first. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and now he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp. And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So you should notice the pronoun shift. That whole first section, it was all third person. The son, the son of man, the son of God, he, it is Jesus sort of standing back for a moment in kind of a prosecutorial fashion and saying, look, you're questioning this father-son, and here is how the son is equal with the father. Now in verses 30 to 47, everything shifts to I and me. He is now taking that on himself and making it very clear that, yes, I am that one. In fact, he is emphatic. We've talked about this before, word order in the Greek is the way you sort of underline or make exclamation points, and a number of these sentences start with that pronoun I, because it is Jesus emphasizing that I am he. There are no third person references in this part of his discourse. In the previous section, Jesus has declared equality with God, the Son having equality with God, in power, in authority, in ability to judge and raise the dead. That is now declared as truth, as God's truth, and what he is now doing is saying, now let me show you the basis on which I say that. I am that one, and here is the authority, here is the testimony on which that comes. With that, that affirmed, he's now going to give sort of the supporting evidence This is important because he said it himself in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus says, if this is just merely me walking around saying, hey, I'm the son of God, and and that's it, and there's no other witness, then you shouldn't believe that. Just like you shouldn't believe for centuries the, the false messianic claims that have come from different men over time who have come out and said that they were some kind of savior sent from God. There's the mini-series on TV showing David Koresh um, that I've seen publicized lately. I haven't watched much of it, but, um, I mean, there's a guy whose great illustration of this, born by the name of Vernon Howell, changes his name to David so that he's recognized as being in the line of David and Koresh because that's another way of pronouncing Cyrus, who was king of Persia, who is described in the Old Testament as a type of savior because he helped deliver the Jews. He rescued the Jews from out of Babylonian captivity. And so he puts himself forth as a savior sent from God. There have been a long line of pretenders who have... Claim to be God's anointed savior. And Jesus, in fact, alludes to this when you look down there at verse 43. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And then he goes on to talk about this glory seeking that the the Jewish leaders do. And, And his point is, there's other false messiahs out there. And if they flatter you, then you're willing to embrace them. If they come along and they say, oh, respected rabbis, you who are just so wonderful and so godly, I have been sent from Jesus to tell you that you're wonderful. I've been sent from God, I should say, to tell you that you're wonderful. Well, they like that. Sure, you must be sent because that's, that's the kind of message that we want to hear. We want glory is, is what that's about. He said, if, if all I have are my claims, those are not sufficient. And so he begins to talk about these witnesses. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And then he'll talk about John, John the baptizer, beginning in verse 33. He is not talking about John in 32. He'll come back to this, this another who bears witness about me in in, in a moment. But he he diverts for a moment to talk about John the Baptist, and that's an important discussion. Because if you'll remember back in John chapter 1, when John was baptizing, the Jewish religious leaders sent sort of investigators out to the Jordan to check John out, to sort of find out his credentials and what he claimed. And so John 1.19 describes the Jews sending priests and Levites from Jerusalem, and they sent them to ask questions of John. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're supposed to be looking forward to? And and, and that's why Jesus says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Because when they went to John and they said, are you the guy? John says, no, not only am I not the guy, I'm not even worthy to to touch the sandals of the one who's coming after me. I'm not worthy of unloosening the straps on his sandals. So there's a greater one coming after me. And in fact, as you recall in John 1, the very next day then, Jesus appears and John is the one who says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he's brought John in at this point to, to... remind again that you you did inquire about John, and John already told you some of this. John spoke truth to you about who I am. He gave witness, and John's testimony is credible, but John was preparing the way. John was not the light. He was a, a lamp that would light for a season and, and, and would point people, but then was temporary, then was gone. He's not Diminishing John's testimony when he goes on from here, but he's saying it is secondary in a sense. It's like you and I, and and our testimony, and our witness to people, if we bring the gospel to someone, their salvation, what we're praying for, will rest on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the authority of God's word, not on the authority of what we say. So it's not about us as being primarily the witnesses, it's about us pointing to Jesus and the gospel and the truth and scripture, And so that's what he's saying here when he he brings John in, but also, in a sense, dismisses. He says, John is true, and and, and it's useful, and it points people to me, and it, it was all accurate, but there is testimony that is far greater, he says, than down in verse 36. Testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The first thing he talks about then is for the works. Now, when he starts that sentence in verse 36, this is one of those places where it's emphatic. In the Greek, it starts with I, the, the pronoun, but have, which is really awkward word order for us. I, you know, we would say, but I have. His point, though, is to be emphatic about this. So you've heard the testimony of a man named John, and it was true. I have much greater testimony. I have a far greater witness that I can point to. So while the rabbis may get their testimony from individuals like John, Jesus is emphasizing, I have something even greater. And he, he then in the rest of this passage offers, I think, three lines of testimony. His works, the works of Jesus, the witness of the Father, and the Word of God. First thing are the works, and that's there in verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That, that sentence points back to the beginning of this whole conversation at the start of John 5, when he healed the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. When that man is in a state where he can't even get himself into a pool that he is lying beside, and Jesus speaks and heals him, and he is now up and walking in the temple area, and that's what starts this whole conversation. And Jesus is reminding the, 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 the Jewish rabbis, The works that I do should tell you something here about the Father sending me because I have done that which only God can do. This wasn't some kind of trick. This is the work of God. This is Jesus doing things only God can do. As Leon Morris writes about the works of Jesus, they show that Jesus is not of human origin but that the Father has sent him. He is saying that is evidence of divine power. That is testimony of God the Father. Secondly, he says in verse 37... And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Stop there a second. There's a couple of ways to take what he means there. One is that perhaps he's referring back to his baptism. John does not include the detail that Mark does when Mark records the baptism of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 1. It says, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice, Father, came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." That account is not in John's Gospel, but John's Gospel, as we've understood historically, was probably the last of the Gospels written. Presumably that story is known amongst believers at that point, and so he doesn't necessarily need to recite it if that's what he's alluding to. Another possibility is John is simply referring here to the inner witness of of God, the, the Holy Spirit at work in people which John himself in 1 John 5 refers to as the testimony of God concerning the Son. So it could be sort of a sense of you, you would know this if, if indeed you had that internal witness. Ultimately, though, I, I think what he's referring to here, the witness of the Father, is best explained by what he will say next about the witness of the Word of God. In verses 37 and 38, he condemns the Jewish leaders for missing it his voice you've never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is condemning them for not hearing the voice of God, not seeing the form of God, and not having the word of God abiding in them. Remember now for these these rabbis, the the men that they historically look back to for authority are men like Moses, who heard the voice of God. Uh, men like Jacob, who saw the form of God. Men like David and Joshua, who wrote about the Word of God dwelling in them. Those are all patriarchs that the rabbis honored. They believed that, that Moses had heard, Jacob had seen, David and Joshua had had the Word just within them, inspiring them. But now, the voice of God, the form of God, the Word of God, is standing right there in front of them, and they don't see it. They don't see it. They don't hear it. There's no sense on their part that they are standing before God in flesh. All they want to do, as God now speaks to them through Jesus Christ, is to kill him, to kill God in flesh. And that's what he's condemning them of here, that God is speaking to you, and yet you are turning a rebellious and deaf ear to the truth that is being said to you. Ultimately, the the problem in this goes back to where we started this morning, and that is the authority of the Word of God. That is this trusting the truth of what God's Word teaches. Because if you look at the indictment that Jesus renders, look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The rabbis were extraordinarily proud of their scholarship. They were the smart ones. They were the ones that that read the scrolls and that studied and that were meticulous in their scholarship. The problem is they saw that as part of earning eternal life. That's why he says you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're thinking that by virtue of being great scholars, you are putting yourself in the place where God couldn't turn you away, could he? I mean, after all, you're smart. You know all about God's word. And with all that knowledge, certainly God must be grateful to see that, right? If you've been a believer for any length of time and you've witnessed to an unbeliever, you have no doubt somewhere along the way encountered someone who has responded to you by saying, I've read the Bible. I know the Bible. I know what's in the Bible. Stop quoting the Bible, because I know all about the Bible. And I'm always taken aback by that, because I'm thinking, I've been reading the Bible a long time, and I'm still trying to know the Bible, to try to really grasp verse by verse, and yet you get these people who just sort of take this attitude, ah, yeah, I know all that. It is possible to read the Bible as an historical piece of literature and to pore over it and look at it in a scholarly way and completely miss the gospel of Jesus Christ and remain dead in your sin. And that's the indictment that Jesus is giving here. These rabbis are trusting in their own scholarship, and yet they're missing the truth that the Messiah gives life. They don't, and, and he says it in verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What does coming to Jesus entail? It, it, it entails a sense of humility. It entails the realization that all that I do does not save me. I cannot do enough to save me. In fact, I'm a hopeless sinner, and my only hope is in coming to Jesus and trusting in Jesus. And that is completely contrary to where these Jewish religious leaders live, which is, We're bringing ourselves to God and all of our credentials. How could he possibly turn us away? And Jesus says, you study and you study, and yet you won't come to me for life. They arrogantly stand in the presence of God in flesh and scheme to kill him. When you don't see yourself as lost in sin and separated from your creator, then you don't flee for life to a savior. You're not looking for one to rescue you. Because you're not convinced you need rescue, and that's what Jesus is saying to them. They adamantly refuse to come because they don't think they need to. And yet these are the same guys who would accept false teachers because they flattered them for their wisdom and their scholarship and what wonderful men they were. Yeah, sure, that's from God, because that's, that, that upholds us. Look at verse 45 again, just these last verses do not think that I will, that, and his emphasis here is on I. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is, this is the most startling part. of of this whole thing in in how Jesus now turns the tables. They came with this accusation against him that you are claiming to be God. Jesus finishes by saying to the Jewish leaders, "Do do you know who says that I am God, that I am equal with the Father? The Word of God. Moses. Moses was pointing to me. And he's turning it back on them and saying, you know what? It's not me who's condemned, it's you who's condemned, and it's the very patriarch that you look for and that you often quote and claim authority from. He's the one who ultimately will accuse you by nature of his words and his truth. He will condemn you before God because he has delivered all this. It is right there pointing to a savior, and yet you are blind to it. What Moses wrote pointed to Jesus. What Moses, Moses we, we see in the Old Testament as the, the intercessor, as the mediator, as the one who brings the law of God to man. And what we come to see is that he didn't bring God's law to man as a way so that some elite followers of God could prove their worthiness. The law was not given so that you could check it off and say, I've done that, I've done that, I haven't done that, that's a no-no, I shouldn't do that, and I am good. I am okay and I am right before God. The law is given to prove that none of us can obey God. That all of us struggle daily, hourly, moment by moment when we see God's perfect holy law and what God calls us to. It is a constant reminder that he is holy and perfect and we continue to fall short. We continue to struggle with sin and disobedience. If they had understood the law of Moses as it was given by God they would have been longing for a savior. If they had understood that what this is all pointing to, these sacrifices that we bring to the temple, that don't, they don't ultimately do away with sin. They're, they're symbolic, and they're pointing, and they're saying there's got to be one who is perfect, who sheds his blood and gives his life in your place as a ransom. All of that should be pointing For them, So that when Jesus comes and John says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Jewish leaders should say, yes, he's here, the one that we've waited for. And here they stand and they say, this guy needs to be killed for claiming to be equal with God. You probably remember the story. You don't need to turn there. We'll just end here. But you probably remember Luke 16. Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees and he brings up the story of the rich man and Lazarus. They have died, and the rich man is in torment. He has died in his sin, and he is in hell. And in some way that Jesus describes to us that that we can't entirely imagine or picture, the rich man is able to in some way communicate with Abraham, who is in paradise. And he is crying out from torment, from his sin and the judgment that he is justly due, And one of the things he says to Abraham is, you've got to send someone to my family to tell them of this horrible place of torment. You've got to warn them. And Abraham's response to the man at that point is, they have Moses and the prophets. They have God's word. They have truth that has pointed them to a savior, and yet they've rejected that. And so the man then replies and says, no, no, if you send someone back from the dead then for sure they will repent. And Abraham says in Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should be raised from the dead. In the end, it must be the authority of the word of God that we stand on. In the end, it must be because we believe that there is a God of absolute truth who has revealed himself through the pages of scripture and has said, this is is true. All of the miraculous signs can give evidence and that's why the Gospel of John is in here so that we would see these signs and know that Jesus is who he says he is. Ultimately we've got to believe that what is declared in this word points us to the Savior Jesus Christ and that is what he is now standing before these religious leaders and saying if you had simply accepted the authority of God's Word and believed what he's already said to you, you wouldn't be condemned But now you are the ones who are condemned by the very truth that you claim to be such adherence to because you've tried to use this for your own gain and turn it into your own sort of set of rules all so you can present yourself to God and you can't. You need a Savior. And that's what this is pointing to. And that's who I am, as Jesus says to them there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that your word is a rich testimony to the plan of salvation ordained by God from eternity past. Lord, we can go back to to Genesis chapter 3 and that same serpent that we read about earlier, Satan. Ultimately, there was a promise in Genesis 3 that one is coming who would crush his head. One who is coming that Scripture will tell us will defeat sin and death. One who is coming who is a lamb who is slayed for the sins of the world, one who is coming to rescue a people for himself. We thank you that the testimony of Scripture points over and over and over again to your coming and that we are reading here in John and throughout the New Testament the truth that you came to be a Savior, that you came to give your life as a ransom for lost sinners. Please, Father, if there is anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would you just open their eyes today to see Jesus no longer as some just historical figure or some figure in a piece of literature, but that they would see Jesus as the Savior they desperately need. Would you cause them this day to embrace Jesus, to believe in him, to find life in him? Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we, we read this passage and it, it makes us look forward to that day when the trump will sound and the dead in Christ will rise. And we will stand united and joined as your people before your throne, bowing before our, our Father and our Savior, grateful for the work done to bring glory and honor to you and to rescue us from our sin. Cause us to rejoice in these truths this week, to be thankful for our Savior who came. Lord, we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.